All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode ninety-six. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are going to talk about banking, fractional reserve banking, fiat currency, and all manner of things. Banking from the supposed original history of banking, if that history can be trusted, up into the modern age. Before I get started here, um, looks to me like the Jungle Surfer has started a Patreon account because YouTube is basically demonetizing nearly everything he makes. If you want to support an individual who is challenging nearly everything, head over to Patreon, find the Jungle Surfer. To get back to money, um, you really got to have quite an imagination to uh, participate in the monetary scheme of things that the Western world now experiences. After all, the money has no value backing it. Uh, It's basically paper, and at the end of the day, it's basically an IOU. So what we do in the West at this point is walk around handing IOUs to one another, and on top of it, those IOUs have what's called usury attached to it, where basically the interest rates have skyrocketed. Back when I was a kid, which I think I mentioned in the show, usury was defined, I think, at 3 or 4%, if I remember back that far correctly. Um, now it is not uncommon for people who carry credit cards to pay anywhere from maybe 20 to even up to 30% or better. Um, you can go look up the definitions of usury to see what's going on here. But I guess before we jump in, I would ask, um, what do kings, priests, Banks and the sky clock, the sun, have in common the path of the sun. We're going to get into these things. After all, the Federal Reserve Branch has, count them, 12 branches. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 96. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and we're going to talk a bit about money and banking. But, uh, well, before I do the intro, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow 777. All right, you sound wide awake and ready to go here. Uh, how goes it down in your neck of the woods? Well, it's turned into Louisiana again. It's nice and warm and a little wet. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here in Rhode Island, man. We have had the weirdest February. I mean, they even predicted a 70-degree day here. Uh, we got very little snow. Maybe I shouldn't complain about it and just roll with it. But anyhow, um, I got a few things in the intro. Uh, as people who follow me may realize, I got another strike from YouTube. That's right. The modern-day book burning <laughs> The modern day book burning is still in force. Um, they went back two years to July of 2016, pulled a clip and gave me a strike and removed it, burned that book. But as fate would have it, Crow Triple Seven Radio has a backup copy, hint, hint, hint. And so episode 15, where I was talking with James Alfred, who runs the Sage Sigma Unbound blog, we were talking one day and we had been looking at a lot of the shootings in the area and we made a prediction that there would be a major shooting, which was the Dallas event. I think I made it something like, I haven't reviewed the clip, three, five, hours, five hours, three hours before it happened, um, made the prediction that a major shooting event would happen that day. And James Alfred pinged me that evening saying, you hit it on the money. Anyhow, episode 15 on Crow 777 Radio is the clip that YouTube burned. Moving on. I did a few interviews this week. One of them was Music Without Boundaries with Jeff Young speaking about the music industry. Uh, It should be his last Thing he's got posted on, I think it's jeffyoungjams.com. I think the interview starts at about 85 minutes. Nextly, I uh, had a very good interview, pretty long interview. I think it went two hours uh, with James Bartley over at the cosmicswitchboard.com. That is not posted yet. I will keep you posted when it is posted. That's a lot of posted. 
Okay, also, Billy Ray Valentine from The Infinite Fringe on TFR has me on a recurring spot and so graciously had me on earlier than I normally do, like twice a month on Sundays at 7 EST, um, to talk about the modern-day book burning. We also talked about the Valentine's Day shooting event, as they do after I leave the intro. Lastly, Sage of Quay has so graciously contacted me again on the tale of the modern-day book burning and invited me to come back on his show for some time in March which I will do. And before I kick it back to you, Jason, let's do our history disclaimer. Um, Some dates, ideas, and principles that we will use as the basic conversational timeline may not exist in history as it is claimed they do. In other words, history may be a lie agreed upon. There it all is, Jason. Back to you. So let's do a smell test from now on when these events happen, these shootings and all that. I intentionally, as we discussed offline, did not look at anything the first day. As a matter of fact, I was out actually doing nicey-nice things with my girlfriend, didn't know what was going on at the time, and I didn't bother looking at anything until the next day, but I formulated in my mind a three-step plan. This is what I'm going to find when I actually look at it. That there was a drill of some sort going on that is nearly identical to what actually went down. That there's going to be people interviewed who just don't seem all that sad, or they even come off as happy. And three, there's probably going to be more than one shooter, even though the mainstream news says only one shooter. Lo and behold, when I was speaking with my friend Wayne the next day and he was telling me all about it, I was dead on with all three of them. So let's give them all the smell test from now on, folks. Do these three things crop up? I bet you they will. Well, maybe we should just start calling these events the ELP events and just flat out say, welcome back, my friends, to the show to the show that never ends. Anyhow, Jason, uh, maybe we shouldn't flirt with strikes more than we need to, although the truth does need to be mentioned, doesn't it? Um, Let's carry on, my wayward son. I do have a habit of poking the bear. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do what you got to do. And, you know, it goes to show the value of having your own website, because when they burn books over here, they're backed up over there, right? Absolutely. So we're going to talk about banking today. Far back in the uncharted history of humanity, whenever that may have actually been, I believe it is safe to say that humans used the concept of bartering in the earliest of communities to accomplish any concept of exchange that would have been needed. As societies would have developed a basis of government of some sort, the concept of taxation would no doubt start setting in. And while this may have been in these early times in the form of grain animals or perhaps even some sort of labor or duty performance, eventually the concept of money, minted money by whatever state existed, would more than likely come in the form of coins or even paper and start taking over from any sort of bartering or exchange. You know, it's strange when you think about a bartering type economy to where we've come now, where basically we just hang hand around IOUs that have absolute no, no value. It's a strange thing. And, you know, as we get into this, Jason, the average person should be thinking, at what point in history, in actually existing history, did we come to a place where we were willing to accept that no value was going to back our currency? But before I jump the gun too much, go ahead. Right, what you're referring to is that modern money is what's called a debt instrument, but we'll get there. This money that they would have created would need to be kept safe, especially if one happened to be accumulating a lot of it. Ancient homes wouldn't have had the benefit of a safe of any sort to store things in, so, therefore, it seems to have come to be that the earliest bank accounts were held at temples. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it seems that the earliest banks were also the houses of worship. We can trust them, right? (laughs) 
It would have been assumed that priests and temple workers would be devout to their god or gods and also to serving the masses and would, therefore, be decent and honest people, not to mention the fact that they would always be around said temples, which would have granted perhaps a sense of security to those entrusting them with their currency. Mainstream history says there are records from ancient Babylon, ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, and Egypt that imply that the temples not only kept money safe, but also loaned money out. This would have made temples the financial centers of their respective cities and empires, proving, if true, that they were indeed the banks of their time. This is also the main reason that invading armies would always ransack the temples whenever possible. Yeah, there's no doubt. And actually, as, you know, I, I'm actually researching on the side here some very old texts where they're talking about how we got the first priesthoods and the first kings and queens, supposedly, or a possible explanation for that. And what's interesting is, is the claim being made is that most moder- modern religions stem from early priests actually hiding uh, natural facts that we've covered so much here, you know, the sky clock, the path of the sun, encoding that into their religions and getting to a point when they had never written it down and actually later priests not even remembering what was encoded. But I don't want to track off too far. Go ahead, man. Banking activities in ancient Greece become more varied and sophisticated than in any previous society up to this point. Private individuals, the temples and other public bodies all undertake financial transactions. They take deposits, make loans, exchange money from one currency to another, and test coins for weight and purity. They keep track of transactions in books. Moneylenders can also be found who will accept payment in one Greek city and arrange for credit in another, which would prevent the need for the individual to transport large number of coins. So here we go, man. The banking, the idea of banking is being formed here. And as we know, uh, with any institution of this type that gets founded over time, it's going to corrupt more and more and more. You know, we're going to get into the ideas of user and these other things, but I just don't want to jump the gun here. So back to you. As Rome expanded, it took the Greek concepts and expanded them over the years. It is also interesting to note that the Temple of Saturn, said to be built around 497 BC, was also the home of the Roman state treasury called the Aerarium. Later on, the Temple of Castor and Pollux would take over this role in the Roman Empire. Another temple, the Juno Moneta Temple, minted money. So it's interesting, you know, you're pointing out the temples here, and Castor and Pollux come to stand for quite a bit all the way up into the modern age. The idea of Gemini, which also relates directly to the Twin Towers that were demolished back in September near the new millennium. Um, The idea here being expressed to the average mind is people are thinking that these people are worshiping gods. That's if there is any accuracy to these timelines. I can't tell you when they happened. The idea here is really not about gods. It's about aspects of nature. So they're tying the banking uh, to these temples, and these temples are actually involved in aspects of nature. Um, And we've been misinformed, you know, this idea that Saturn is a god and these other things. These things are not correct. Um, And Jason, have I done many episodes recently to point out what, in fact, the temples were about and what, in fact, they were tracking. But here you can see the monetary system being firmly tied again to what else? The path of the sun and the sky clock. There it is, man. Jason. And let's not forget that the mystery schools were in full effect by this point in Rome. And they are the ones who are the true keepers of the knowledge. And, of course, we see a direct correlation to the money keeping and the mystery schools. 
Right. Without the mystery schools, you don't have any basis for tracking the sky and the way that it ended up getting encoded into all the religious endeavors that make their way forward all the way to the modern time. Um, these are the people who were involved in tracking the sky. And, you know, there was a, a lot of power associated with that. If you were a priest and you could stand out on the stoop of your temple and say, guess what? The the sun's going to be blocked today. Uh, the people who didn't know any better were literally amazed by your power to make these predictions. Um, and that's just kind of a little bit of insight. But the main fact is that the priests held this natural cause and effect information from all the masses. And that is, in fact, how we got these centers of power. And as you can see, the banking and money is being integrally tied to these these places. And if you don't pray and give coin, the gods will not return the sun to its proper position. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyhow. Continuing on with Rome, the first of the money changers were called trapezites from the Greek word trapezo, which means counter. These would have been Greek bankers that dealt with bank transactions in counting houses around the Forum. An example of what they were doing would be exchanging drachmas for sesterces, or vice versa. They had such a large presence in Rome because Greek commerce in the Mediterranean was quite dominant at the beginning of the Roman Empire, of, of the Roman Republic. Yeah, we need an Admiral Akbar here. It's a trap! <laughs> 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 the trapezites. Um, go ahead, man. Keep pushing. Next, we have the first of three kinds of Roman bankers. The Argentari were money changers, and their role became more important as commerce and trade expanded throughout the Mediterranean between the 3rd century BC and up into the 3rd century AD. Money changers are also said to have had shops and stalls in the Forum, not far from the large temples. The Greek term was eventually replaced by the Latin term Argentari, also called Argente mense exercitores, argente distractores, or negotiatores stipis argentariae. Sorry, folks, I took Spanish in uh, high school, not Latin. Or the Roman money changers. The argentari were private and free individuals, meaning not slaves to anyone, who were totally independent from the Roman state and who belonged to a guild which accepted only a limited number of new members. Their shops or stalls around the forum were state-owned property and built by the censors. Their main function was to exchange foreign currency for Roman currency, permutatio in the Latin. Their functions expanded over time to include almost every money transaction, including holding other people's money, lending money, participating in auctions, determining the value of coins and detecting forged coins, and circulating newly minted money. The Argentari's reputation could vary. Some were highly respected and belonged to the upper class, usually the ones carrying businesses on a large scale and with very wealthy clients. Some were looked down upon, usually the ones charging usury rates and doing business on a small scale and or involved in shady transactions. Right. And I think the average mind will recognize we're basically talking about a version of the money changers, which show up later, the idea of this in the Bible. But almost certainly groups like this were across race lines, um, as is often the case back in this supposed part of history. Anyhow, Jason. Well, I would say racist pursuits are for the common folk to deal with and not the actual wealthy elite. Their concern is the money and keeping it flowing. Well, what's what's strange about this is, you know, the way we're handed 
ancient Rome is like there's basically two classes of people, maybe three if you want to get finite. Um, there's the semi-royal people, um, and then there's everyone else. And so what you're seeing here is the claims being made that these people were outside the Roman aristocracy. These people were outside the common people. They were free, and yet they were being supplied with the buildings and the protection or whatever they may have needed to do their money lending, currency changing, and all these other things. So it's a strange dichotomy on the face of it. Well, it also sounds like Rome had a middle class. Well, there was. There was every class in Rome. It's just that the class that mattered uh, was the highest. And so um, every and, you know, it's funny, you, you get different accounts. Um, even the common people were allowed to participate in government up to certain points. But basically, you have the idea of being royal all the way back to, to accounts of Rome. During periods of general poverty, which were often the periods when Rome was at war, the problem of citizens' indebtedness was important and represented a threat to the stability of the Republic. In ancient Rome, being unable to fulfill one's debt obligations did not mean a bad credit file. It potentially meant slavery for the average citizen. To solve the problem of people's indebtedness, public bankers called the Mensari were introduced in 352 BC. A five-man commission called the Kinkaviri Mansari was created along with a public bank. The Kinkaviri Mansari would cover from public resources citizens who could provide enough security, for example, a property. Citizens who could not provide enough security gave up their property to the creditors after proper valuation of their property by public officials. Over a century later, in 216 BC, a commission of three people was created with wider functions. Mensari were often confused with the Argentari, even in ancient times, even though they were public, not private, bankers. Over time, the functions of the Mensari became very similar to that of the Argentari. They held deposits, they determined the value of coins, tested the genuineness of money, and that sort of thing. The Mensari had an excellent reputation and were highly respected. Their role was considered positive as they were able to address the problem of excess debt and solve many people's debt problems. The accounts that we've been handed from this time and the bullet point you just read begin to show how control crept in very quickly. Um, whenever you start to get to the point where there's banking and these other things, what's actually going on, in my view, is that that royal class I was talking about, the top tier of Roman society, uh, they begin to implement control. And it's you mentioned it obliquely in the bullet point because it potentially meant slavery for the average citizen. If you got so far in debt, you couldn't get yourself back out. Yet there are accounts of plenty of the royal and semi-royal families in Rome getting so far into debt that they were the laughing stock of their class, yet they were not made slaves. Um, and quite often they were manipulated because another rich family would bail them out of debt and then they would be pawns in the schemes of that family. But to take it further, uh, you're starting to get into the idea of the value of money. And on the face of it, anyone can see that this is a means of manipulation. If you have an ounce of gold, um, it should have pretty much a static value to some degree. And I know people will argue um, supply and demand in these things. But the point is, you can already see a, a group of people coming to bear that will be able to manipulate things in whichever way they choose. And so if in fact they become you know, agents for the state, it's just a way to control the masses. If you want to argue that these guys are legit and they wouldn't do that, I would have to say, come on, man, the history of banking shows us otherwise. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. And the third kind of banker in ancient Rome, the Numulari, held a bank that put new coins into circulation. 
They took older foreign coins and exchanged them for new coins. Their role was to put new coins into circulation and to test the quality of new coins. Because they could test the quality of the new coins, they knew how to test the quality and value of coins in general. They were sometimes called upon when large transactions were involved in order to test the genuineness and value of coins, just like the Argentari. Actually, many of the Numenares' functions were the same as the Argentari's. They exchanged foreign currency for Roman currency. They held deposits and lent money. They participated in auctions and large commercial transactions. They made payment on behalf of clients and executed payments abroad through local bankers. So I just want to make a modern observation.、Um, I've had members of my family that were big into collecting coins, and on a few occasions I went with them to coin shows. Pretty interesting thing to do.、Um, a lot of interesting things there to see. But one thing I noticed was that there's always these guys who have like a little grab bin、um, for these very cheap coins, and quite often you're being told these are Roman or ancient Greek coins, and there, there's tons of them. And you're thinking, really? So here for a buck I can own a coin from ancient times. We're being told, and yet that quarter that was minted a couple decades ago, you know, that's way out of my price range. That's worth thousands of dollars. And it always bothered me on the face of it. How could it be that these coins from a supposed ancient time are such throwaway items in terms of the coin collecting? No more of them could ever possibly be made, which would imply that there are so many in the market they would never worry about it. But that can't be the case either. So there's just a modern observation about what we're talking about and the idea that history is a lie agreed upon. I mean, after all, Jason, how in the hell could any Roman minted coin or Greek, you know, ancient coin be? Worth a buck when a quarter that was minted in the modern day is worth thousands of times that. I'm just saying. Well, I would assume the argument would be that the、uh, coins would be made out of silver or gold, and and the old ones were just made out of whatever. But I was always under the impression that they used gold in the olden times too. But I'm not 100 certain about that. Well, when you see the coins, they don't look like、uh, precious metals、um, per se,、um, but they're often misshapen. You know, they're not perfectly round. This kind of thing. But I'm just saying, you know, there's never going to be a time when more of those will ever be acquired by anyone if they were truly ancient. And I think there may be, you know, if I'm going to be blunt about it, maybe there's fraud going on there because I didn't go to a single coin show where I didn't see this going on. But anyhow, that's kind of a side observation. Go ahead, man. Interesting observation, nonetheless. Another practice that came to be as the commerce traveled from place to place over the waters was maritime admiralty law. Seaborne transport was one of the earliest channels of commerce, and rules for resolving disputes involving maritime trade were developed quite early in recorded history. Early historical records of these laws include the. Rhodian law, known as the Nomus Rhodian Nauticos, of which no primary written specimen has survived, but which is most definitely mentioned in other surviving legal documents from the time, Roman and Byzantine legal codes, for example. So here it is, man. We're beginning to tie all the things together. After all, Jason, we all live in a yellow submarine, apparently. So now we've taken the priesthood, tied banking to it, and now here, of course, comes the admiralty law, which is still the bane of our existence today, in my view. It's it's one of the main reasons.、Um, That I point to Rob S. YouTube channel so often、uh, because he's standing up to point out、uh, the nonsensical kind of inventive nature of these rules that don't really bind us at all. It's just a mind game. And here, way back in a supposed time, whether it existed when we think it did or not, you're beginning to show how maritime admiralty law is creeping in to be like the third stool, you know, third leg on that stool of priesthood, banking, and 
you know, a form of law, which is basically nonsensical on the face of it. Yes, it is. Because the Mediterranean under Roman control was not only the center of what was considered the Western world, but also its principal commercial highway, European maritime law would evolve as a uniform, supranational, comprehensive body of law, a characteristic which, though sometimes threatened by the spread of nationalism, with one country taking over another, has never been lost completely. (laughs) Absolutely not, folks. Maritime admiralty law still stands to this day. Indeed. Because the barbarian invaders who moved south were not seafarers, the main Mediterranean seaports were able to maintain their independence. More specifically, the conquered peoples were permitted to keep the Roman law to which they had become accustomed, and in the field of maritime jurisprudence, the transition into the Middle Ages was therefore gradual. As certain Italian cities began to outstrip the Eastern Byzantine Empire commercially, they formulated their own maritime laws, some seeming to date as early as 1063. Trani, Amalfi, Venice, and other Italian port cities all had their own collection of laws that they followed. The next widely accepted body of sea laws was called the Consulate de Mar, or Consulate of the Sea, originally compiled at Barcelona in the 13th century. More elaborate than the earlier codes, the consulate was followed in Spain, province, and the Italian cities and had a significant effect on the development of what would become modern maritime law. And, of course, there is much speculation as to just how deep those roots run in modern societies. And when we follow through on the history of the banks themselves, you'll see how important those areas in Italy become. Right. And, you know, words have meaning, as we say so often. And what are we calling these laws? They're codes. Hint, hint, hint. And basically what's coming to bear here as we move through a timeline that may or may not exist in the way we think it does, um, back in this era, because there must have been some era when banking began, um, you're looking at clever ideas being assimilated into the money system as a way to control, as a way to arbitrate power, as you know, it's going to do all these things. But at the base of it, what basically begins to happen as admiralty law or maritime law, whatever you want to call it at this point in supposed history is, is it's going to be clever. And it literally is coded. Uh, Anyone who has followed uh, recent work on maritime law will show that nearly every word we use has a coded meaning and it goes directly back to the sea. Um, But I don't want to get too far into that right now, Jason. I'll kick it back to you. After the fall of the Roman Empire, there is a decline in trade and therefore less of a need for bankers as such. The Christian church also doesn't seem to take to the concept of loaning money with interest very well. This is known as usury, and it seems to have become thought of as morally offensive. One anonymous author in medieval times declares quite distinctly that a usurer is a bod to his own money bags, taking a fee that they may engender together. This is an important bullet point because it shows the initial reaction of the world to the idea of usury. For the average mind, we're basically talking about loaning money at interest here. Uh, When I was young, in my lifetime, if I am not mistaken, and I am drawing from memory over many decades, um, usury was defined as anything over 3 or 4%, I think. Anyone listening to this right now, when you go get a credit card, it is not uncommon to see anywhere from 15% interest and in some cases up to close to 30% or one-third of the the borrowed amount 
uh, involved in interest. So you can see what has happened here and where we've come. And in my view, we are living in the age when all this crap is going to come falling to the ground. It's gone too far. It's gotten too far out of hand. And when we look back to a rational mind looking at usury as a way of basically abusing people, um, look where we are now. It is openly done. Although we've thrown aside the idea of the word usury and we have clever terms like APR and all these other things that hide the fact that basically we're all suffering from extravagant usury at this point. Back to you, Jason. Let me also point out for anyone who is not aware that when you open a credit card, they are not loaning you money. That account is just being created in your name and being made out of thin air. And when you spend that credit on accounts, you are then owing that to that bank or institution or whatever you want to call it, plus interest. So you're owing money on something that didn't exist in the first place. It's literally just, oh, you owe us, and then some. And it, there's nothing backing it up whatsoever. Right. So basically, if you take it apart logically, Jason, it's basically a form of slavery, isn't it? Um, so what they're doing is they're giving you this thing you need called money. You, everyone needs it. Very few of us have enough of it, um, but we all need it. So they give you this thing called money, and instantly at the second it is loaned, you are suffering from usury because there's going to be an interest fee. But what Jason is pointing out here is it's just a thing. It's a thing we all agree that we do, but it has absolutely no backing in anything of value. So at the end of the day, if you logically work out what we're talking about, it's a way to enslave people, period. It's a way to put them on the hook. It's a way to get them into contracts um, using this thing that everybody needs. And yet when you break it down, we need a thing that has zero value. It's not like we all need to have some amount of gold in our house at this point. What we actually need is this idea that you do, in fact, have some level of monetary ownership. And the truth is the monetary ownership you have is nothing more than a debtor's note. And at the end of the day, when you tie things like APR to monies, you're basically just enslaving people. So in the modern age, I would submit that the whole monetary system is a way, a, a, a way to control and indenture people. Absolutely. Now, why there are too many people in prison for a whole bunch of nonsense, the true imprisonment is debt slavery because, well, here's a great example. When you're in college, 18 to 22-ish, you will have credit card offers thrown at you because they know you're a dumb, dumb kid who's going to accept them and go run them up because you just don't know any better. And it happens to a lot of of people. These companies know what they're doing and they're going to get you and they're going to get you early. Well, at this point in the Western world, uh, I don't think you'll meet three people today that don't have some major form of debt going, whether that debt is tied to the house they live in, the car they drive, the school they went to, or simply just using credit cards. It is in fact um, you're looking at a bunch of indentured servants all around you every day. It's just that we've lost sight of this fact. We act like there's money involved. In fact, there is no money involved. What is involved here wholeheartedly from the very initiation of transaction is debt. So let's keep pushing, Jason. The Christian downing of the concept of usury eventually provides an opportunity for bankers of another religious tract to rise in regards to European financial needs. The Jews, who were frequently barred from many other forms of employment, begin to fill the gap in the money department. But their success and their extreme visibility as a religious sect of their own brings its own form of attention on them. Not so desirable, in fact. 
This is interesting. Not too long ago, I saw on the classic movie channel, I saw it coming, was supposed story of, of how the Rothschilds came to be. And in the same way I just described that banking institutions make debt slaves of us all, the claim in that movie or the historical claim of what the Rothschilds did was basically they did the same thing that's being done to us, to the kings and queens of the time. So you can see that if there's any truth to that, you can see the power in a banking system. It can even be brought to bear apparently back in the day against kings and queens. That is the story of Rothschild, if it's to be trusted. Anyhow, Jason. And we will get into the house Rothschild in quite a lot of detail in hour two. There's there's no getting away from it. And, you know, for people who are interested, you can go back and look at how Hollywood wants to portray that this very poor kind of ghetto living family. And I forgot the original name. It wasn't Rothschild, which Bauer. translates to Bauer um, translates to Red Shield. They were living apparently in this poor area where Jewish people were called a ghetto, and there was what's called pogroms going on all the time. And these three or four brothers, I forget, Jason will cover it, come to banking power and end up in the midst of wars, basically owning and operating royal royal houses and uh, becoming the arbiters of world power. But anyhow, Jason, back to you. Eventually, however, a different group would come to be the most influential in terms of banking for a time, the Knights Templar. Mainstream history says that the Knights Templar traced their origin back to shortly after the time of the First Crusade. Around 1119, an Italian nobleman, Ugo de Pagani, from Nocera de Pagani in Campania, southern Italy, collected eight other knights, including Godfrey de Saint-Omer, and began the Order with the stated mission to protect pilgrims on their journey to visit the holy places. They approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem, who allowed them to set up headquarters on the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock at the center of the mount was understood to occupy the site of the Jewish Temple. Known to Christians throughout the Muslim occupation of Jerusalem as the Holy of Holies, the Dome of the Rock became a Christian church, the Templum Domini, the Temple of the Lord. But the Templars were lodged in the Aqsa Mosque, which was assumed to stand on the site of Solomon's Temple. Because the Aqsa Mosque was known as the Templum Solomonis, it was not long before the knights had encompassed the association in their name. They became known as the Pauperes Comelitones Christe Templice Solomonansi, the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ, and of the Temple of Solomon, which was eventually shortened to Knights Templar. <laughs> so here we are, man. Let's count the ways because this is all going down around 1119 by the date we're handed by history. And what are we looking at here? We all know that the story, hard to know how much of it is myth, is that the Templars are going to become one of the earliest major banking figures. But what are we talking about here? By their own stated history, they're supposedly come together to protect people visiting the holy places. So again, we have the complete connection and just interweaving of the idea of holy temples and banking coming together. Um, it's a little early to talk about that. Jason needs to get through the timeline a little more, but there it is. The Knights Templar um, connected on both sides, even in their name to the Holy Church, and then very shortly here to banking in a big, big way. The important thing to point out here is that the Knights Templar did not start from the church. They started on their own. It wasn't until later that they got papal approval for their existence and become an army of God. And it's very, very important to point that out. A lot of people just sort of assume that the Knights Templar were part of the church, and they were not, not at first. 
Well, I would suspect, Jason, that the truth is, you know, so many people say, oh, they got caught, you know, worshiping Satan and all these other nonsensical mythical stories. I think the truth of it is, is they were following the older natural ways that you and I have worked so diligently to try to show are being tracked by everywhere. Then when the Christian church comes into place, they're actually hiding and encoding the older natural ways. And these guys are still involved in it. That's my best guess. But there is so much myth surrounding the supposed order of knights that it is near impossible to get to any nugget that you you know certainly is truthful, but nonetheless, it is a basis for this conversation. I'll just state that my strong suspicion is that they were a mystery school of sorts. Oh, I don't think there's any getting away from it. And whenever we say mystery school, we've pointed out in endless episodes by now, what are we talking about? We're talking about the sky here. That's what we're talking about. And this goes hands in hand with alchemical ideas. And the real shame of it is um, if you took medicine, the idea of medicine from an alchemical view, what you're looking at is truly cures. You're not going to get this idea that we have today where if you take this medical drug, you might your skin might fall off and you might have rectal bleeding and all this other nonsensical stuff that can go on from a medicine you took. If you go back to the alchemical ways, it either works or it doesn't. And there's no side effects. There's no all these other things going on. They're literally trying to use what they know about nature to treat a specific thing. But I don't want to wander too far away here. I just want to make it abundantly clear that in all likelihood, the Knights Templar are in fact a mystery school. And what that means is they're involved in the sky clock and these other things, alchemy that we've covered so so extensively. Back to you, Jason. Don't forget about thoughts of suicide. Don't all drugs that help you give you rectal bleeding and thoughts of suicide? Well, yes, they do, but that's only in the modern age. (laughs) There was a better way once upon a time. Okay, though initially said to be an order of poor monks, the acquisition of an official papal sanction made the Knights Templar a charity across Europe. They received their sanction in 1128 from Pope Honorius II, who had declared them to be an army of God. Further resources came in when members would join the order, but had to take an oath of poverty, and therefore would often donate large amounts of their original cash or property to the order. Additional revenue came from business dealings. Since the monks themselves were sworn to poverty, but had the strength of a large and trusted international infrastructure behind them, nobles of the time began to use them as a bank of sorts, or a power of attorney. If a noble wished to join the Crusades, for instance, this might entail an absence of years from their homes. Some nobles would place all of their wealth and businesses under the control of the Templars to safeguard it for them until their return. The order's financial power became substantial over time, and the majority of the order's infrastructure became devoted to economic pursuits as opposed to any sort of militaristic endeavors. So here it is, Jason. In my view, where we've gotten here um, is the idea of corporation. You know, these guys are calling themselves basically the poor soldiers. They're taking a vow of poverty. They're supposedly giving all their worldly goods, but the very organization they're part of is wealthy and getting wealthier and getting more power, more power, more power. So here you can see the mind twist that is the idea of things like corporation, Um, this non-existent entity. you know, and it is holding the wealth. You see, all these guys work for the same organization, but they're all poor. 
but the entity they're working for is the opposite of poor. They are rich and powerful. So this almost looks in some ways to me as the beginnings of these bizarre kind of legalistic ideas that have no basis in reality that are then brought into being and over time people accept them, giving them life basically. And I think this is a prime example to correlate with what a corporation is, a dead entity that has no life or existence given the rights of a person. But in this case, all the guys who work for this place have all taken a vow of poverty, yet the place they're working for is rich beyond compare. So there's all those ideas, Jason. Now, to give you an idea of the power of marketing and symbolism, the emblem of the Knights Templar was of two knights on one horse, representative of their oath of poverty. But they were not poor knights in any regard whatsoever. In fact, a knight would be granted not one horse, but multiple horses, as well as an entourage to accompany them on whatever they were sent to do for the order. You know, I had forgot. I was going to look into this, Jason. Um, I'm familiar with the logo you're talking about of the two. They're so poor. Suppose knights are so poor that two guys got to share one horse. But I would be willing to bet that what we're looking at is Gemini encoded here. But I would have to go back to uh, to try to demonstrate that in any meaningful way. By the year 1150, the order's originally stated mission of guarding pilgrims had transformed into a mission of guarding their valuables through an innovative way of issuing letters of credit, which, of course, was an early precursor to modern ways of banking. Pilgrims would visit a Templar house in their home country, depositing their deeds and their valuables. The Templars would then give them a letter which would describe what their holdings were. Modern scholars have stated that the letters were encrypted with a cipher alphabet based on a Maltese cross. However, there is some disagreement on the exact nature of this, and it is possible that the code system may have been introduced later and not something used by the medieval Templars themselves. While traveling, the pilgrims could present the letter to other Templars along the way to withdraw funds from their accounts. This kept the pilgrims safe since they were not carrying valuables. This only further increased the power of the Templars to a very large degree. Well, it also tells you something else by logical deduction. If I go into one, quote, Templar temple and I do a transaction so that I don't have to carry money around and I go to a different country to another, quote, Templar temple, they've got money there. So basically what you're looking at is these temples are actually banks, right, Jason? In essence, yes, they were banks. So here it is. Uh, we see the complete mishmashing of all the things that we've talked about. The idea of banking power, the idea of the religious institution being wholly involved in that, the idea of corporation, the idea of admiralty law, and at the very base of it, the idea of secret societies who have tracked and hidden the natural environment from the majority of the world through most of an age or two here. Anyhow, Jason. The Knights Templars' involvement in banking grew over time into a new basis for money as they became increasingly involved in banking activities of all sorts. One direct indication of their powerful political connections is that the Templars' involvement in usury did not lead to more controversy within the order and the church at large. Officially, as has been discussed, the idea of lending money in return for interest was looked down on and forbidden by the church, but the order sidestepped this with clever loopholes, such as a stipulation that the Templars retained the rights to the production of mortgaged property. Another way of describing it is, since they weren't allowed to charge interest, they charged rent instead. But the results were, of course, exactly the same. 
Well, you get into this idea of the dead body, the corporation. What is a mortgage but a death debt, right? It's where the word is derived from. The first part of that is mort. That means death. Um, there's no getting away from these things. And so here again, uh, these supposed holy order that are supposedly around to protect people from, you know, to go to holy places and be messed with, um, it's wholly about banking at this point. And you can see the same old ideas that are held in admiralty law, that are held in corporate law, that are held in any of the nonsensical legal systems that bind us all today have crept in. Um, and the idea of usury is now, you know, it's a bad thing in this day, and they're figuring out ways to loophole around it. And I would point out again for the umpteenth time on this show, this is one of the major tenets of Islam uh, for many many ages probably the ideas of islam were that all money had to be backed by value and i have suggested before on this show that this is one of the reasons that they're being attacked wholesale and that that kind of culture is being ripped apart uh, i forget what the numbers were jason but i think we're down to just a couple of places that claim islam as their basic spiritual foundation that have held on to the idea of money being backed by currency most of the other places by this time having been basically pulled apart and pulled into a more modern banking system which is just a form of control well, a large number of Islamic countries now are in bed with the petrodollar, so it will definitely have a value to it, that's for sure. Right. You know, at some point we come to the idea of central banking and so for central banking to work in the way it does, you can't have a society that has currency backed by value. You just can't do it. But anyhow, we'll keep pushing here. All of these business holdings were necessary to support the campaigns of the Knights Templar. In the year 1180, for example, a Burgundian noble required three square kilometers of estate to support himself as a knight, and by the year 1260, this had risen to 15.6 kilometers squared. The order potentially supported up to 4,000 horses and pack animals at any given time if provisions of the rule were followed. These horses had extremely high maintenance costs due to the heat in what was known as outremer, the Crusader states at the Eastern Mediterranean and had high mortality rates due to both disease and the Turkish bowman strategy of aiming at a knight's horse rather than at the knight himself. In addition, the high mortality rates of the knights in the East, regularly said to be 90% in battle, and this is not even including any wounded, resulted in extremely high campaign costs due to the need to recruit and train more knights on a regular basis. It is sad that the Templars' political connections and awareness of the essentially urban and commercial nature of the Outremer communities led them to a position of significant power, both in Europe and the Holy Land. They are said to have owned large tracts of land, both in Europe and in the Middle East, built churches and castles, bought farms and vineyards, were involved in manufacturing as well as the importing and exporting of goods, had their own fleet of ships, and for a time are even said to have owned the entire island of Cyprus. So as we follow the tale as history is handed to it, you can start to see what the problem may have been for this group of people. They could travel across borders with impunity in a time when supposedly very few could. But now they're involved in banking, they're running campaigns, and lo and behold, they have their own fleet of ships. I would suggest that for the average monarch of the time, these guys were looking like a, you know, a dominant threat. And so uh, if I had to guess what becomes of the Knight Templars and the, the idea that we have of Friday the 13th and all these myths that we've been handed, I suspect what was actually going on was that it was a banking interest that started 
reported to be a threat to monarchy. Um, not sure where you're at on that, Jason. If the mainstream history is correct, then yes, that's exactly what it was. All these kings who would start all these campaigns of war and all that, they'd spend all the money they had, need more, and then they'd go to organizations like the Knights Templar, although they weren't the only ones. The Hospitallers did things along these lines. There, there were a lot of groups that were involved with this sort of thing. And, of course, they'd get indebted to these groups, and they'd realize after a time, why am I indebted to these people? I'm the monarch. I can just do what I want. And I think this is what, as I said, if, if mainstream history is accurate, what led to their downfall. Because greedy monarchs who, who saw the power and wealth and no national affiliation of the Knights Templar, that to me seems like it would be a very juicy target to somebody who had the guts to go ahead and do something about it. Well, it just goes to show, man, we're talking, you know, history hands us this idea that it was a group of very few people that were these holy knights working for God to protect pilgrims on their holy pilgrimages. And lo and behold, they end up to be the exact opposite of this thing. And, uh, you know, these may be some of the earliest ideas of admiralty law and corporation being brought to bear. And for that matter, maybe even central banking. After the persecution and official obliteration of the Knights Templar, there once again was a gap in the banking needs. Banking in the more modern sense can be said to be traceable to medieval and early Renaissance Italy, to well-off cities in the north, such as Florence, Venice, and Genoa. The original banks were merchant banks, institutions that Italian grain merchants invented at some point in the Middle Ages. As what became known as Lombardi merchants and bankers grew in stature based on the strength of the Lombard Plains cereal crops, many displaced Jews fleeing Spanish persecution were attracted to the trade. They brought with them ancient practices from the Middle East and Far East silk trade routes. Originally intended to finance long trading journeys, they applied these methods to finance grain production and trading. Jews were not permitted to hold land in Italy, so they entered the great trading piazzas and halls of Lombardy alongside local traders and set up their benches to trade in crops. They had one great advantage over the locals. As has been previously mentioned, Christians were strictly forbidden the sin of usury, defined as lending at interest. Islam makes quite similar condemnations of usury, by the way. The Jewish newcomers, on the other hand, could lend to farmers against crops in the field, a high-risk loan at what would have been considered usurious rates by the Christian church. But the Jews were not subject to the dictates of the church. In this way, they could secure the grain sale rights against the coming harvest. They would then begin to advance payment against the future delivery of grain that would be shipped to distant ports. In both cases, they made their profit from the present discount against the future price. This two-handed trade was time-consuming, and soon there arose a class of merchants who were trading grain debt instead of grain. The Jewish trader performed both financing, which would be credit, and underwriting, insurance, functions. Financing took the form of a crop loan at the beginning of the growing season, which allowed a farmer to cultivate through seeding, growing, weeding, and harvesting his annual crop. Underwriting in the form of a crop or commodity, insurance guaranteed the delivery of the crop to its buyer, typically a merchant wholesaler. In addition, traders performed the merchant function by making arrangements to supply the buyer of the crop through alternative sources, grain stores or alternative markets, for instance, in the event of crop failure. He could also keep the farmer or other commodity producer in business during a drought or other crop failure through the issuance of a crop or commodity insurance against the hazard of failure of his crop. 
Merchant banking progressed from financing trade on one's own behalf to settling trades for others and then to holding deposits for settlement of billet or notes written by the people who were still brokering the actual grain. And so the merchant's benches, bank is derived from the Italian for bench, banca, meaning a counter. It's a very important point to consider, folks. In the great grain markets became centers for holding money against a bill. Billet, a note, a letter of formal exchange, later a bill of exchange, and later still a check. These deposited funds were intended to be held for the settlement of grain trades, but often were used for the bench's own trades in the meantime. The term bankrupt is a corruption of the Italian banca rata, or broken bench, which is what happened when someone lost his trader's deposits. Being broke, a common term today, is the same inference. So much there, Jason. I mean, there's almost no portion of the modern monetary system we all live under now that isn't kind of obliquely referenced or flat out stated in this bullet point. Um, of all these things, I'm not even sure. What what would you point out as some of the biggest kind of changes? For me, it's the idea that a person's going to go out and grow food of some sort. And there must have been a period in time where you went out, you grew it, and when you had it, there it was, your value. And now we're shifting to these kind of unforeseeable ideas of, well, we'll do business now, but your crop's not going to become ready till later. And in that gets wrapped up so many mechanisms for control um, and failure, to be blunt about it. I mean, in your view, what are the big, you know, the most major changes in this bullet point that shift forward into the modern day? Well, to sum it all up, really what it is, it's the concept of trading tangible goods for make-believe, just like with credit cards and all that, and later on what would be fiat currency, nothing backing it. It just, it exists because we say it exists. Yeah, that's a good point. As a matter of fact, that's a very good point, Jason. So basically, we're getting to a point in a supposed history here where reality doesn't really matter anymore. We're just going to make up ideas and concepts, and that is going to become the foundations of what we're about here. And in doing this, many people are going to come into debt slavery, basically, or be ruined altogether. But at the end of the day, one thing is certain. The people who are playing the part of the banker are always insulated and safe, although you do cover the idea of being bankrupt. But I think mostly being bankrupt applies to the people more than it does to the bank. And you also see the concept of insurance coming into existence. You're paying for the possibility that something's going to go wrong. Yeah, again, you know, betting on a nonsensical thing that has no existence. It's just the idea that failure could happen. But anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the hour, Jason. Do you want to quickly cover some of the uh, some of the things we're going to go over an hour or two? We're going to go through the rest of the history of banking. And the big one is we're going to talk about what I can get out of mainstream history and put together about the Rothschilds and banking and how that turned into our modern Federal Reserve, the central banking, fiat currency, all that. Yeah, the, the bane of modern existence. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of our one for episode 96. At the posting of this episode, there will be 96 free hours of content over at crow777radio.com. Uh, you can head over there and listen to anything you want without a login. If you'd like to become a member, that's fantastic, too. And before I close down here, I would like to mention The Fringe FM online is going to be running the first hour of our content every Saturday night at 8 p.m., 
Eastern Standard Time. So go over and check us out. Again, that's The Fringe FM at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That brings hour one of episode 96 to a close. Hope to see you all over at Crow777Radio.com for the second hour. Cheers. Cheers.